Hey, it is Ezra. I am thrilled to tell you about Reset, the new show from Recode and Vox that it is launched, it is in the world, and it is a beautiful thing. Um, we've been working on this for a really long time, a show that is a couple times a week that is able to get in the stream of the news, but look at the technological dimensions and layers to it to actually try to understand like what is happening in the technology being used, that these are the outcomes we are getting. It's hosted by Ariel Duham-Ross, who just is awesome, awesome host for this, and awesome tech journalist, knows his stuff backwards and forwards. And what it's trying to do is make the world we live in actually comprehensible. You can talk about it. You can use the terms quantum supremacy, AI. But until we have some basic literacy in how they work, none of it makes any sense. Um, we're just like at the, we are at the mercy of those who do. So I want to show you two episodes here today of Reset. Um, one is about quantum supremacy. Like, what the hell are we talking about when we talk about quantum computers? What makes a quantum computer better? What could it eventually do? Why does anybody actually care? Um, and the other one is about this AI project to help people write better, which I think that the simple way to put this is it has implications way beyond just how we write. Um, and the question of what gets encoded in that, what better even means, is really pretty powerful. Um, so I will let Ariel take it from here. Google's been cooking up something big. In a study published in the journal Nature last week, the company announced that it reached something called quantum supremacy. Google says it has achieved the impossible. Quantum supremacy. Google says it's designed a computer that needs only 200 seconds to solve a problem that the world's fastest supercomputer would need 10,000 years to figure out. This is Sycamore. Google says it's the first quantum computer to achieve supremacy over traditional computing. That's when a quantum computer can perform a task that a classical computer couldn't do in any practical time frame. And that also is the extent of our understanding. And by that, I mean Isa and mine. Now, why do we care about this? Well, before you just say, you know, hey, nerd, what does this have to do with my life? Here's the really amazing thing about it. Google's team has proven it can work. This is the hollow world moment for quantum computing that many of us have been waiting for. The term quantum supremacy sounds frankly ridiculous. It always makes me feel like electrons are going to take over the world. But people have been waiting for this to happen for a long time. It's felt like for years we've been waiting for an announcement of what people call quantum supremacy, and that's what Google announced this week. That's Kevin Hartnett. He's a senior writer for the math and physics magazine Quanta. And the Google News got him fully nerding out. Because what Google announced means that a special type of computer, called a quantum computer, is finally doing things, instead of just feeling like... This almost mythical dream for decades. So, shit's getting real. And we're going to tell you why. On today's episode... We're explaining quantum computing and why two of the biggest tech companies, Google and IBM, are obsessed with it. I'm Ariel Zemros. This is Reset. I promised I'd explain Google's quantum supremacy news. But to do that, first I have to make you eat your veggies by talking about physics. But don't worry, because I got you. I am here for you, and we're all going to do this together. So, Kevin, what's a quantum computer? 
A quantum computer is a machine that performs calculations using the laws of quantum physics, as opposed to, I guess, your classical computer, like your phone or your desktop computer, that behaves according to the laws of classical physics. So a classical computer computes using bits, and bits can be either one or zero. So like the foundation of code, basically. Exactly. It's, that's, what, that's what code is. Now, a quantum computer doesn't use bits. It uses quantum bits or qubits. And these qubits are made out of quantum material. And a qubit can be in a position of one or zero, or it can be described by the probability that it's in one or the probability that's in the position zero. So what is the advantage of that system? The advantage of that system is you have these many different possible states your quantum computer could be in when you kind of are working through your calculation. And each of those states has a probability assigned to it. That's the key. A regular computer, or what computing experts would call a classical computer, like your laptop or your phone, those computers can only try one possible pathway at a time to get an answer. But a quantum computer can get to the right answer more efficiently. That's not super intuitive. So here's a thought experiment. Imagine a ball and a hill. Your task is to get that ball to land on a specific spot at the bottom of the hill. So imagine that you're at the beginning of the comp your computation, you are at the top of a hill, and you're going to roll a ball down the hill. And it could kind of go any number of ways down the hill and end up at any number of different spots at the bottom. But there's only one spot at the bottom that's the correct answer. So if, you're, if you have a classical computer, the best you can do is kind of roll that ball down the hill and see where it lands and see if it's the correct answer or not. So you're constantly running the ball up the hill and then you get to drop it once and then maybe you get the correct answer. If you don't, you got to roll it back up the hill and try all over again. That's right. It's a, it's a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time. But with a quantum computer? You have the ability to uh, kind of structure your qubits so that the path the ball takes down the hill is, in some ways, the, the most likely path it takes down the hill is the one that corresponds to the correct answer at the bottom of the hill. So you can kind of tip the hill, tip the scales in your favor in order to get to the correct answer a whole lot faster. That's right, uh, a lot faster. That is the whole shebang right there. A quantum computer should theoretically be able to get you an answer a heck of a lot faster than a classical computer. But when it comes to speed, sometimes the newest, flashiest mode of transportation isn't the most reliable. So you have to ask yourself, when does performing a calculation with a quantum computer become undeniably more efficient than doing the same thing with a classical computer? That, in a nutshell, is the quest for quantum supremacy. So quantum supremacy is a benchmark that was set about seven years ago in 2012 by a physicist named John Preskill at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. And what quantum supremacy means is a quantum computer can do something that no ordinary classical computer can match. What exactly does that mean? There's this idea that quantum computers should be able to perform calculations much faster than regular computers. But a lot of people doubted whether it was possible to actually achieve a calculation like that in practice. So quantum supremacy is the moment a quantum computer actually performs a calculation 
that a classical computer simply can't keep up with. Because if you give a classical computer enough time, maybe even more time than we have left in the universe, it can do anything a quantum computer can do. Supremacy means a quantum computer can do something in a categorically faster way than a classical computer can do it. The world's most powerful classical computer is called Summit. It's owned by IBM, and it's as big as two basketball courts. Google's quantum computer, on the other hand, probably fits in your bedroom. And it has a name too, by the way. It's called Sycamore. So what Google did was give Sycamore a very specific problem to solve, called a random circuit sampling problem. And what they showed is that their computer can solve this random circuit sampling problem in about 200 seconds. And the most powerful classical computer in the world, which is called Summit, well, Google estimated it would take that computer 10,000 years to solve the same problem that their computer solved in 200 seconds. Wait, wait, wait. So what Google announced is that it basically dunked really hard on IBM's most powerful computer, the most powerful computer, classical computer in the world. It dunked hard in the sense of this particular problem, and you could say it killed it. That that feels like a big deal. Is it a big deal? It is a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal in a practical sense, right? There are lots of things we can do if they only take a couple minutes to carry out the calculation that we can't do if we need years or tens of thousands of years. Except that if you ask IBM, Google didn't dunk as hard as it says it did. IBM is certainly skeptical. They issued a paper saying, not so fast, they haven't actually done it because Google estimated in their paper that it would take a, the most powerful ordinary computer 10,000 years to carry out this calculation. And IBM said, actually, that most powerful computer, which we designed, can do this in two and a half days and probably even faster than that if we had time to fine tune how we did it. Uh, and I should also say that IBM themselves, they are perhaps Google's biggest competitor in the effort to build a quantum computer. So is IBM just a sore loser or is this a very good point that they're making? Well, the point they're making is good and it does point to something important about supremacy, which is you're trying to prove that a quantum computer can do something faster than any classical computer can. So proving supremacy, truly proving supremacy, would involve proving there's no way a classical computer can do this kind of problem as fast as a quantum computer. And we don't have that kind of proof here. It took the most powerful classical computer in the history of the world, a computer that occupies uh, an area the size of two basketball courts. It took that computer, or it would take that computer, you know, say a minimum of two and a half days to do this calculation. If Google's quantum computer gets even a little bigger, if instead of 53 qubits, they have 70 qubits, now a classical computer that fills two basketball courts won't be able to keep up at all. You need a classical computer the size of a city to simulate that same calculation. And that's the sense in which the quantum computer is doing things categorically faster than a classical computer. And I think that difference is really what people have in mind when they talk about quantum supremacy. And that's why most people are pretty comfortable saying that what Google did, if it fully checks out, is in fact a demonstration of quantum supremacy. So is IBM also going to demonstrate supremacy anytime soon? 
IBM has been on the record for a while now that they are not chasing the goal of quantum supremacy. They view it as an artificial benchmark. You could cross it and still not be doing anything useful. So they, at least in their public statements, have been much more practically minded. So this is a difference between Google being the kind of basketball player that wants to to straight up flip in the air before dunking and uh, IBM that just wants to do a layup because they know that it works and it's the same amount of points. I would say so. And it, it, it seems like Google has been more animated by the basic science of it and kind of the sense of possibility and exploration. My man, Kevin, with the perfect segue. So we've established that Google's quantum computer is significantly faster than the most powerful classical computer in the world. But what exactly are the possibilities with this? Are personal quantum computers in our future? That's after the break. So, Kevin, the computation that Google performed to demonstrate quantum supremacy, is it useful? It's not useful in the sense of being practical. Uh, This random circuit sampling problem really is very specialized, almost tailor-made for the purposes of demonstrating quantum supremacy. The engineers at Google compare it to the Hello World program that the first Apple computers ran. And it's almost just showing you can turn this computer on and it works. I think one way you can think about it is when the Wright brothers had their first famous flight, it wasn't useful to anybody, but they showed it's possible. And that probably inspired lots of people to follow their lead and develop the very practical air travel industry we have today. And I think the hope is that Google's demonstration of quantum supremacy will be similarly inspirational for the quantum computing world. Right, because the first flight by the Wright brothers didn't last all that long at all. It didn't last all that long at all. But I guess you could imagine it demonstrated some kind of supremacy over cars, which can't even get off the ground. Is that what we're talking about? Is, is it the difference between a plane and a car in terms of, of you know, the, the sort of gigantic leap and achievement that, that Google says it, it has achieved? I think that's a reasonable comparison. Certainly, the places we hope we can go and the speed with which we can get to them via a plane is comparable to the hopes that people have for quantum computers. It sounds like we've got a ways to go, but... Can I expect that in my lifetime, people will be walking around with phones that are actually super fast quantum computers? Unfortunately, no. There are kind of two reasons why you shouldn't expect to have a quantum computer in your house in the next few years or probably in your lifetime. One reason is that the types of problems quantum computers are well designed to solve are very specialized. And those are not the kinds of problems you need to solve to run a web browser or play music in your house. So that's one reason why a quantum computer in every house is probably not the future. The other reason is that quantum computers have a long, long way to go before they realize their potential. The Google quantum computer had 53 working qubits, and it's taken years to get even to that number. In order to do a lot of the most practically useful things we hope quantum computers will do, they will need thousands, millions, maybe even billions of qubits. So, so many more 
than any quantum computer has now. And that day is probably a long, long way off. If these computers are not that useful for the average person, why are we excited about this? What actually are the practical applications of a very powerful quantum computer? There are a few very specialized types of problems that we think quantum computers are going to be able to solve very quickly. And these are important problems. So one is that we expect quantum computers, once they get big enough, and this is still a long time away, but once they get big enough, we expect they will be able to break virtually all of the codes and encryption systems we use today. So I'm sorry, you're saying that quantum computers can break almost all encryption? That sounds like a big deal. It is a big deal. And I think it's why national governments are investing a lot in quantum computing and why every time we see headlines about advances in quantum technology in China, people get very nervous because quantum computers have the potential to be, in a sense, the ultimate code breakers. And they would be able to instantly break the encryption systems that safeguard most secrets today. So if a much more powerful quantum computer than the ones that we currently have access to could break encryption, I got to ask, what does that mean for the internet? It means the internet would need a new way of encrypting your data. And people are working on that now. What we're saying here is that quantum computers, if they get a lot more powerful, are the Kim Kardashian of encryption. They'll break the internet. That's right. We'll need a new internet. What Kevin is saying here is that quantum computers, like Kim Kardashian, should theoretically be able to break the internet by breaking a common form of encryption called RSA encryption. The idea behind that type of encryption is that it's really hard to break down a large number into its prime factors. And so if you base the key to unlocking your encryption on that principle, you've got a code that's hard to break. One that would take a regular computer something on the order of hundreds of years to figure out. And so right now, that's how we keep a lot of information on the internet safe. But with a very powerful quantum computer, one that's a lot more powerful than the ones we have now, the time it takes to break a large number down becomes really short. And that means the key you use to encrypt stuff is easy to figure out. And the internet is kind of screwed. But that's all still mostly theoretical at this point. There are other things quantum computers will be useful for, like drug discovery and financial modeling. But for most of that stuff to be truly worth it, you need quantum computers to get a lot more powerful. Well, I think this is just the start of the development of an extremely exciting technology. The idea that we can use quantum mechanics and particles like electrons to perform computations just seems insane. It's insane because if we build a working quantum computer, it demonstrates that we have achieved a kind of physical mastery over matter in the universe at the most fundamental level. We are controlling it, we are manipulating it to our own ends, and we're performing calculations with it. That's kind of stunning. And the fact that engineers are now actually pulling this off is kind of amazing. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zimros. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS, and you can reach the Reset team by emailing us at reset at vox.com. 
If you haven't already, subscribe to the pod on Spotify. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. All right, so that was the first episode uh, we're running here for you today. Let's go to the second. A few years ago, David Hart came home from work to find his son and his wife agonizing over a problem. My son was on the computer and he was in tears. And my wife was really frustrated. And, you know, the second I walked in, she asked me to step in and help out. And she was on the point of tears, too. His son was in the fourth grade and he had to write an essay for school. But rather than hand in the paper to his teacher the next day, he was supposed to submit the essay online that night. And it would get graded right away. The website is called Utah Compose. And the way it works is it has automated essay scoring software. The keyword here is automated. No human required. The grading is done by an algorithm. To pass the assignment, the essay had to hit a certain score. You know, he had to get something like 25 points out of 30 points. But nothing his son had written so far had made the grade. And he only got a certain number of tries. And they were running out of tries. The instructions said you're going to be scored on your ability to communicate clearly in the fewest number of words, right? So get the point across, which seems like a good goal for writing. But when David's wife tried to make the writing more concise, it didn't help. Her essay got scored even lower. They were following the suggestions that the software was giving them, and they still weren't getting increases in scores. And so they were just getting more and more frustrated. Clearly, something wasn't working. But as it turns out, David was uniquely suited to help because he's a software engineer. And I have sort of an ongoing side project using some AI technology to help me render pictures and do art. AI, artificial intelligence, the technology behind self-driving cars and voice recognition. Now, it was also grading David's son's essay. And the whole thing was exasperating his entire family. So David caved and did the thing every parent eventually has to do. He Googled it. I I think I read some suggestions that, you know, sometimes these things are, are really easy to trick. And I started adding words to the essay, just making it longer. And immediately the score went up. Oh, wow. Even though initially the the goal was to try and keep it short. Exactly. So I made it really, really long, and suddenly we hit the required score. If David ignored the program's suggestions and made the essay longer, the algorithm was actually pretty easy to trick. But at this point, David was kind of pissed. So he had an idea. I was sort of irritated that it wasn't scoring what it said it scored, and... Um, Number two, all the suggestions were sort of bogus. And so I went Googling a little bit more and I found a long essay. It was a petition to ban automated essay scoring. Okay. And I pasted the entire essay verbatim (laughs) into this website and the score hit 30. That's a perfect score. You know, in terms of anything we could submit that was going to be way off topic and also get a perfectly high score. I just thought it was nice and ironic. David's encounter with AI grading happened six years ago. Today, his kids still use the automated essay grader. The entire state is still using it. And I asked my wife about this, and my wife's quote was, the software has never helped our children improve their grades ever. It hasn't taught them anything. It hasn't helped them become better writers. It hasn't done anything like that. 
how does it feel to actually work in AI, to be interested in artificial intelligence, and then to find yourself sort of um, hitting up against it when it comes to your son's education? It's really interesting because it strikes me that there are good ways to use it and bad ways to use it. And ultimately, I think what's important is that we understand a little bit more clearly exactly what it can do and exactly what the limitations are and not pretend that it's some magic box that can just do anything. Right. It, it's not really intelligent yet, <laughs> right? It's artificial, but it's not very intelligent. I'm Ariel Zwimros. This is Reset. On today's episode, algorithms are grading student essays across the country. So can artificial intelligence really teach us to write better? Todd Feathers wrote about AI essay grading for the tech website Motherboard. I mean, you, you hear that a computer is grading your kid's essay. I think most people's initial reaction to that would be, that's not right. He called up every state in the country and found that at least 21 states use some form of automated scoring. The algorithms are prone to a couple flaws. One is that they can be fooled by you know, kind of nonsense, gibberish, sophisticated words. It, it looks good from afar, but it doesn't mm -hmm. actually mean anything. Okay. And the other problem is that some of the algorithms have been proven by the you know, testing vendors themselves to be biased against people from certain language backgrounds. Todd wasn't able to pin down exactly how many students are affected by this. But here's what we do know. These programs are being used by students of all ages. I'm talking high school students, students applying to grad school, middle school, and elementary school students. Basically, students at every level. The reason it's so hard to figure out who's affected by AI grading is because there's no one program that's being used. There are a bunch of different algorithms made by a bunch of different companies but they're all made in basically the same way. First, an automated scoring company looks at how human graders behave. The vendor will come into a state and say, okay, administer your test the normal way, and we're going to take 1,000, 2,000 essays. We're going to have expert human graders grade a certain percentage of them, about half, and we're going to train artificial intelligence engines to recognize these and predict what score a human grader would give an essay. So they don't actually grade the essay, they just predict. And depending on the program, those predictions can be consistently wrong in the same way. In other words, they can be biased. It's a huge issue. The system that grades the GRE tends to downgrade you know, African-American students by about 0.81 points on a six-point grading scale when compared to a human grader, which is huge. If you're trying to get into graduate school, you know, almost an entire point on an essay, you know, it's right. probably going to be a four, five, or a six. It can make a giant difference. So legitimately, what this means is that humans are better at allowing for various cultural backgrounds versus these, these algorithms. Yeah, humans aren't perfect. I mean, there are plenty of examples of bias in education in general and in testing. But I think the issue that we come into with AI in a lot of contexts is it doesn't just replicate the bias that it learns from you know, the, the human-graded data sets. It amplifies it. Bias amplification. It's a term you see a lot when you read about AI. Basically, all the AI wants to do is be as accurate as possible. To do that, the program picks up on small grading patterns it sees in a data set. 
and uses them to make broad generalizations at scale. And sometimes those generalizations are biased. That can happen in a few ways. For instance, a company might have a bad sample of essays that doesn't feature a diverse set of writers. Or the people grading the essays might frankly be prejudiced and just give lower grades to certain groups of people. Or the algorithm might be reductive, looking only at certain features in the writing and downgrading anything that deviates. The point is, there are a bunch of ways that an algorithm can be biased. But once they're built, they reproduce those biases at a huge scale, thousands of essays more than the training set. And the worst part? You can't cross-examine an algorithm and get to the bottom of why it made a specific decision. It's a black box. So by now you might be wondering, if there are so many potential problems with AI graders, why would anyone want to use them? I think there are two arguments. One, probably the primary one, is that it's cheaper. It's definitely cheaper to have a machine do it. Um, But the other argument is that this gives immediate feedback to students in, in some context. You know, before you would have to wait months to get the results of your standardized test. And by that point, you know, students, they're, they're on summer vacation. They don't really care. They're not going to learn from a, a poor grade, or, or they're not even going to remember what they wrote. And when students get feedback immediately, that frees up teachers to work on something else, like their lesson plans. So if you're a state that needs to save money and wants to give teachers a break, AI graders look like a pretty decent option. I think it will become more widespread. One of the things I asked everybody that I interviewed is if they thought their state would ever go back to human-graded tests. And they unanimously said no. Once you're into AI scoring, it's so much cheaper. This is the future. Okay, so both David and Todd explained the problems with AI graders. But what do the companies who make them think? I spoke to Aoife Kahol, a managing senior research scientist at Educational Testing Service. Their algorithm grades the GRE and other standardized tests. We have assessments in all areas, language proficiency, graduate school entrancy, that kind of thing. I asked Aoife about the bias problem. It's very possible that programs can be biased um, if you don't train them correctly. So you want to make sure that the data that you use to feed the system, to train the system, is as unbiased as possible. But it, it's, it is very possible that you can introduce it. Um, because, of course, the systems are learning from humans. So if the data set you happen to choose is biased, then the machine is going to learn that bias. So... When you're picking a data set, how do you even know if that data set might be biased? And then how do you know if that's actually affecting the machine? Well, it's a very challenging um, topic, actually. We have a number of checks in place. First of all, we try and make sure that the humans that are scoring the essays in the first place are well-trained. They get monitored to make sure that they're sticking to the rubrics. We make sure that responses would be scored by multiple humans to make sure that they're all roughly in agreement. But it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system. It It can happen, potentially, that you might end up with a biased data set, you know, even despite all these checks that we would have in place. So we spoke to a parent who was frustrated that one of these language systems wasn't really teaching his child how to write. He thought the program was teaching his kid how to write big words rather than how to write well. How would you respond to that? He's probably not wrong. (laughs) At least when we develop tools that try and support learners of writing, we try and collaborate with the writing community to try and find out what are the things that people who are researching writing, what are the kinds of things that they teach? What are the kinds of things that they think are important? Having a system teach big words is 
it's a particular skill, but it's maybe not core to being able to write well. You know, the ability to write well is a, is a whole range of skills. Maybe vocabulary is one piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. So you read the Motherboard article. What was your reaction to it? Well, I think what I felt was that people don't always get the full picture of how these systems are used. These systems can be used inappropriately, and if they are, then of course there's going to be problems with them. But I think these systems actually can provide a lot of benefit and support to teachers and students if they're used appropriately. And I, I think that was um, my biggest disappointment with the article, was that it didn't um, give that side of the thing. We reached out to the Utah Board of Education. They told us that the program Utah Compose isn't designed to replace teachers. Quote, like all instructional tools, its value is either enhanced or diminished by how it is being used. After the break, what happens when AI writes the essay instead of grading it? Okay, so far, AI graders might seem like they're leading students to the wrong kind of writing. Yet another way to cut corners when it comes to education. And it might seem like AI itself is the problem. Maybe computers just aren't creative enough to grasp something as personal and human as writing. But Seagal Samuel would say that that's not necessarily true. She's a reporter at Vox who's written extensively about artificial intelligence. She's also a novelist. And recently, she's been applying AI to her writing. I had a bizarre thought enter my head when I first heard about these uh, language models, which was, hmm, I wonder if at some point these AIs are going to be able to write my novel ideas better than I could. Seagal was thinking of this one program in particular called GPT-2. It's made by a company called OpenAI. So I decided to sort of like test this by actually taking the novel that I published in 2015, which is called The Mystics of Mile End, and plunk sort of paragraphs from that novel into GPT-2. It's, uh, it's at talktotransformer.com. So you can actually just go on this website and put in like a couple sentences and, and see what happens. Exactly. So I put in, you know, like three, four sentences from my novel, and then it generates a bunch of text, a continuation. The algorithm is sort of analyzing your words, your syntax, and then it'll spit out how it thinks your text should be continued. Okay, and you did that with your book. Exactly, because I kind of wanted to see, like, you know, this is how I finished this scene, but how would the AI finish the scene? So what were the results? The results were sort of astonishingly good to me. Here, I'll give you an example. There's one scene where one of my characters, a young woman, is actually kind of losing her sanity. Her father has died, spoiler, and <laughs> she's actually like in a moment of great distress eating this manuscript that he had been writing. And so I'll, I'll read you a, a little bit of what I wrote and then what the AI wrote. Letters stumbled into my mouth and I swallowed them. Ink poured down my throat, and I drank it. And then words I didn't know flowed through my skin, and I drank them and drank them and drank them all over again. I ate, sated, until I vomited. The AI came up with this great idea, which is that my character, after, like, gobbling up her father's words in a sort of strange attempt to reconnect with him, her body has this violent physical reaction to this attempt, and she vomits. And I love that idea, and I didn't think of it, and in retrospect, it would have been perfect. 
So you actually feel like the AI did a better job than you did yourself? Yeah, I mean, in that very localized sense, yes. How does that make you feel as as an artist, as a, as a writer? I, I feel like all I can think is that must kind of hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of me is like, well, damn. <laughs> like, I spent years, you know, honing my craft and getting a degree in creative writing. But honestly, the bigger part of me is just pretty delighted because, A, this kind of new AI is just super cool and it's a fun toy to play with. But B, I really sincerely do think that it's going to make my future writing stronger. Mm. And I'm excited for how I'm going to get to use GPT-2 to write my next novel. So you're actually going to use this to write your novel. How are you going to use it? Well, one of the next projects I'm working on um, is a children's book. It's about two little girls who discover a hotel with infinite rooms and there's a black hole in the middle of it. And so they jump into the black hole. And obviously there's a ton of wormholes in the black hole So they have to figure out how to navigate them. I, irritatingly, have been facing a giant wall of writer's block with this book in the past few months. Uh, So I recently plunked a few sentences from it into GPT-2. And one of the things I've been struggling with is the world building, uh, which is very important in fantasy writing. Like, how... Do the mechanics of this fantasy world you've concocted work exactly? There has to be an internal logic to it. So I just plunked in a couple sentences. They climbed into the wormhole. The air inside the tunnel felt cool and fresh and blue, like the inside of clouds. And the AI text asks the following questions. Here's the deal. Is the wormhole closed or open? And is the wormhole stable? And does it feel like it takes shape when you look at it, or like it's a fluid thing, like it has to be squeezed? The AI generated all these questions for me that are super, super useful, um, because they are going to help me world build. As a writer, you don't always have the luxury of being in the middle of an MFA workshop or just friends who you can bat around these ideas with. So it's kind of nice to have this machine sounding board slash collaborator. You sound really positive about this, but I can only assume that there are limitations. So what is it bad at? Mm. So it can be really useful on the, like, localized level, helping you think of specific questions or writing a few terrific sentences. But it's really bad at, like, larger story structure. It can only generate something based on what it's already, what you've already put down. It can't generate, like, a whole narrative arc, a larger plot structure that you need for a novel and that makes a novel satisfying. Do you think it could get there at some point? I think it's conceivable. I think we're not anywhere close to that. Um, But, you know, it has been said that in all of literature, there are only six main story arcs. There's like the Cinderella arc, there, you know, there's rags to riches, you know, there's, there's very specific arcs that are common to a lot of our literature. It's conceivable to me that an AI could be taught to mimic um, those basic templates and then kind of like slot in the specifics of characters and words and scenes. I am skeptical, though, that an AI by itself without any human involvement is ever going to write a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. We spoke in the first half of this episode about using AI to grade essays for high school students and elementary school students. And 
given your experience with AI, I'm wondering, what do you think of that? Um, <laughs> I'm pretty skeptical of it. Um, AI language models um, are, are really, really cool and can be helpful collaborators in a lot of ways. I think we run into problems when we try to use them as substitutes for humans. There's a big difference between creating and evaluating, right? I think when we're creating art, yeah, like, let's use all these different tools and, like, let our imaginations run free. And, you know, um, when we're evaluating and attaching a grade and potentially penalizing someone, it's going to have effects on their lives. Like, I don't think we want to be super restrictive. And for that matter, that could apply to a human evaluator just as much as an AI evaluator. Yeah, I guess the difference is that you can actually interrogate a human evaluator and sort of go back and go, okay, how did you make this decision? Whereas I think with the AI, that's a lot harder to do. Exactly. AIs often have this opacity, this black box quality. We don't necessarily know exactly how they're arriving at their judgments. Okay. So with everything that we've talked about today, how do you feel about AI in general? <laughs> um, I this long sigh. <laughs> <laughs> Like all technologies, you know, there are, there are always risks to things. And I think it's just because humans, the creators of these things, are people who, you know, we do cool stuff like make awesome art and we do horrible stuff like disseminate fake news and start wars and things. So I think it's really all just in how we use it. Seagal Samuel is a staff writer at Vox. Reset is a recode by VoxJam. If you like the pod, subscribe to Reset for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to get new episodes three times a week. And also, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Will Reed, Martha Daniel, and Skylar Swenson produce the show. Our engineer is Eric Gomez, and Gautam Shrikashan helped out on this episode. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Art Chung also EP'd the launch of the show. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. This week, Reset owes a big debut thanks to Nishaf Kurwa, Allison Rocky, Lauren Williams, Ezra Klein, Kara Swisher, Peter Kafka, Irene Noguchi, Lauren Katz, Blair Hickman, Delia Pinescu, Zach Kahn, and Liz Noonan. They helped us get off the ground. It takes a village, you know? Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ariel Duemros, but you don't have to say it that way. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds. Hey, this is Ezra again. So that was Reset from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's coming out three times a week. They are working like hell on it. I know some of what's coming and it is awesome. You should go subscribe. You can, of course, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts, from Apple Podcasts or just your favorite app. Um, and we will, of course, have a link there in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Go check it out.